welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 150. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, once again, we do have a Q&A episode lined up for you. So Jack, I'm going to hit you up with this question. It says, how would you respond to the claim that bodybuilding is vain and a superficial activity? Yeah, so I can definitely see why people might think that because on the surface people see some muscular people who hop up on a stage and have a fake tan and they show off their muscles and also I think bodybuilding often gets confused with fitness models and those people on Instagram who post that style of content which often I agree the two could be coincided often bodybuilders do that as well I guess we do that as well yeah (laughs) and Yeah, I think it's also just a very superficial way of thinking to think that all bodybuilders are vain or that it's a vain sport because it definitely does depend on the individual. But when I think about bodybuilding, I think about more so the performance that goes in to achieve the physique and also the nutrition and the regimentation. And then the physique you generate is a byproduct of what you put in, just like any other sport. So I guess, let's say gymnastics, like the physiques that they generate or the performance that they generate and the skills that they have as a result of the training that they do. Yeah. Or ballet dancers or divers. There's Mm. plenty of aesthetic sports out there that both have a visual component because you want it to be very appealing to the eye, but there's also that performance component too. Mm. So I guess when you start looking at the physique as more of not a way of you personally showing it off, but not that there's anything wrong with that, but more of it's a byproduct of the facet of the sport. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I look at it. I think a lot of us started bodybuilding in the beginning to try and change our physiques, like whether we were younger as a guy and wanted to have bigger muscles or because we were maybe insecure or wanted to impress someone. But then once you actually get into the sport and you've been doing it for a decent amount of time, it becomes more than that. It It becomes like a sport, just like any other sport. Yeah, it's interesting. When I think of bodybuilding and I think of someone as a bodybuilder, there's no denying that their level of muscularity is, of course, a component of that. But I think of everything that goes into actually building a physique of that caliber. So when I look at that person, I think, wow, okay, that requires a hell of a lot of discipline, a hell of a lot of commitment, a hell of a lot of passion, an incredibly strong work ethic. So I think of all of these different things that will actually go into building that physique to create it. I So I see kind of past the physique. I almost see within the physique. And to me, that doesn't make it a vain sport in any sense, because ultimately as bodybuilders and physique athletes, we wear our work. That's one of the main things that I love so much about this sport is that You can't fake it in any sense. You really do walk around wearing your work and it is a case of use it or lose it. So if you see someone with a phenomenal physique, it's not like they worked really hard in their life at one point and they just earned that and then they get to keep it for the rest of their life. It's something that you're constantly building and refining so that you can't just maintain it but so that you can keep building upon it. So when I actually look at a bodybuilder, 
I never think of, oh, that person's just so vain. I, I'm more so an admiration. And Jack, I've actually got two definitions here for vain and superficial. So the definition of vain is having or showing an excessively high opinion of one's appearance, abilities, or worth. Now, what do you think about that when it comes to bodybuilding? Well, yeah, as I said in the beginning, I think some people could be vain and also bodybuild, but that Mm. doesn't mean all bodybuilders are vain. Yeah, you can't just put everyone into a box. No, because sure, someone could have an inflated opinion of their physique or kind of show it off as per the definition, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean it applies. Just because you have a good physique doesn't mean you suddenly aren't doing that. Mm -hmm. And I think often that's a reflection on the individual who is calling that person vain because they might be insecure about their own physique or they might wish they had that physique or they wish they had the dedication to achieve that physique as well yeah i i completely agree and the definition of superficial is appearing to be true or real only until examined more closely (laughs) having no deep significance or real substance yeah i mean it comes back to vain like you can't lump everyone in that same basket and Also, the sport of bodybuilding is definitely not superficial because of all the work that goes in beneath the physique Mm -hmm. and leading up to the preparation and all that. I think it's a case of you really can't judge a book by its cover. Mm. So you can't just go on to someone's Instagram profile who's heavily invested in this sport and just, you know, start name calling saying they're vain, they're superficial because they just show off pictures of their body. Like there's so much more to it than that. And I think the exact same argument could be made for basically any sport. Mm, 100%. Like what about all the football players who have a bit of a self-inflated opinion or like to show off their skills and stuff like that? So (laughs) can't be applied to everyone. Yeah. And also, Jack, what's your opinion on people who don't think that bodybuilding is a sport? Uh, I don't really care. And that's kind of one of my answers to this question. If someone calls me vain or superficial, I don't really care about that either. So mm-hmm. like, sure, it's not a Olympic sport, but it doesn't really matter to me whether it's listed as a sport or not. But I refer to it as a sport. Personally. Yeah, well, I think it's a sport because, dude, we compete. It's a mm. bodybuilding competition. And I personally think that if people are allowed to play video games and they enter into world championships and it's they play e-sports. esports, man, and the prize money for that just puts bodybuilding to shame. I'm serious. I'm pretty sure top winners at esports what win upwards of 20, 30, 40 million dollars. Mm. I'm not sure, but. It's definitely a lot of money. It's in the millions. It's a lot of money. But when you compare that to bodybuilding, the top guys at the Mr. Olympia, I'm pretty sure like Mr. Olympia, they usually only hand out around like $400,000 max. And that's Mr. Olympia. But still, you can use that word only when you're comparing it to esports. But that's like the top end of Mr. Olympia, right? Like what about Miss Bikini Olympia? They only usually get like $50,000 for first place sort of thing. So it's almost like a pathetic amount when you actually compare them. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's absolutely wild. Like the people who play in esports, like they would have just from winning one world championship, that's like more money than probably Phil Heath, Ronnie Coleman, and Jay Cutler all combined won at the (laughs) Mr. Olympia just because some dude won a game on a console. Yeah. Very, very true. 
Oh. Not that I don't think money plays into it too much, but <laughs> I think the bottom line of this question is that someone can be vain or superficial without being a bodybuilder, without playing any sports at all. It's more mm-hmm. about the character of the individual rather than whether or not they bodybuild. Yeah, I completely agree. And I just don't think that people should be judging books by covers and i think that you should get to know one another and ultimately just focus on you and also if you're a bodybuilder and you love doing this like jack and i then freaking keep pursuing it man and who cares what other people think because like you said it usually does stem from somewhere of insecurity but i know that with bodybuilding it personally makes me feel accomplished and productive and as if i'm achieving something and working towards something every single day. It gives my life routine. It gives my life purpose. It gives me strength. It's given me a career that I freaking love. And I can probably speak for both of us when I say that. So, uh, hell, someone could probably call me vain or superficial and I'd just be like, okay, (laughs) I'm going to keep doing me. (laughs) Mm, I agree for sure. (laughs) Okay. So this next question, Jack, it says, is some degree of muscle loss inevitable when getting extremely lean? There's a lot of nuances to this question and answer because we need to factor in, for example, like genetics, how lean they are getting, like what's their rate of loss, what's their level of muscularity, how long have they been training, potentially not whether they're male or female, but like what category they're competing in, how they measured their body composition, like how are they judging whether they've lost muscle, is it visually, is it via a DEXA scan? So a lot of different points to consider and it's kind of very difficult to give a blanket answer to this one. Yeah, I think that if someone makes the claim that, oh, I went through a prep and I just was dieted so hard that I lost so much muscle, it might be true, but also I think that's a pretty subjective claim. Like, Well, let's put it this way. This is how I would phrase it. It's definitely possible to lose a lot of muscle Mm -hmm. and I would say the odds are against you you're more likely to lose muscle than you are to maintain it or gain it (laughs) that's a very good point (laughs) yeah so especially for people who don't have great protocols or they do very short aggressive preps or they they don't know how to train adequately while in a prep or they can't muster the intensity required to maintain their performance in the gym like Mm -hmm. as a rule of thumb if your performance in the gym goes downward significantly throughout a prep then you are more likely to lose muscle Mm -hmm. performance goes down or perhaps you just start to slack off on some of your exercises like some of the really tough stuff you might decide to skip it sometimes on your program and do that Mm -hmm. enough times that's going to compound and you probably will lose a little bit of tissue and that's why we just emphasize going through an improvement season, going through that pre-prep phase, and then giving yourself such a good starting point and such a great launching pad to then begin a comp prep so that you begin a comp prep with a high level of muscularity and you are adhering to a training program and you're following a structured program that you can progressively overload with. And you've got exercises on there that yes, they challenge you, but they also work well for your biomechanics. And it's that combination of they provide you with a little bit of anxiety, but not so much so that you're like, oh God, I'm just going to skip my hack squats today or something like that. So that you can actually adhere to it and show up to the gym and get the work done week after week after week coincided with starting off in a place of good energy availability so that you don't have to start on drastically low calories relative to what you probably could have started on and planning well ahead so that like you said, you don't have to do some drastic 
eight week prep where you're trying to lose a kilogram and a half a week, try to aim closer toward 20 weeks plus and give yourself some time. Mm. Yeah, I agree because ultimately the odds are stacked against you for maintaining what muscle you have. Like your body in that sort of state, it recognizes that you're depriving yourself of energy for a long time. It's sure it wants to retain muscle, but it also wants to survive and it will use your muscle as fuel in order to fuel itself. Mm -hmm. So therefore you, you are the one who has to oppose that muscle loss. Your body isn't necessarily going to do it all for you compared to like at maintenance or in a surplus where it's significantly easier. So that's where an appropriate rate of loss, uh, being strategic with sports nutrition, and also of course training is probably the most important factor there to maintain what muscularity you do have. Mm -hmm. And those would probably be the most important points, but I think it's worthwhile to mention like some people either say they have retained all the muscle when it's quite obvious they haven't, or some people also say that they have lost a lot of muscle when in fact they may not have. Mm -hmm. And again, there's no true 100% objective measure in order to actually test how much skeletal muscle mass you truly have at the beginning compared to the end. There certainly are some methods that can give you a good indication perhaps, but they all have their pros and cons. So for example, if you were to get a DEXA scan at the very beginning of your comp prep and then compare that to the very end of your prep, you might've had a gold standard prep where you had a great starting body composition, you lost an appropriate rate of loss, you didn't do anything drastic, and you maintained your training performance to the best of your ability throughout. But then when you do your second DEXA scan at the very end, it says that you've lost five kilograms worth of lean mass. And you're like, what? I lost five kilograms worth of muscle and I only lost 12 kilograms in total. So I really only lost seven kilograms worth of body fat and five kilograms of muscle. What is this shiz? You know, like this clearly wasn't a gold standard prep, but that method has some flaws in it, unfortunately, because for example, when you get a DEXA scan, the way that it actually identifies lean muscle tissue is via hydration within the body and fluid compartments. So that's how it's going to separate your bone mineral density from your lean tissue, from your adipose tissue. But as we know, when you are consuming more carbohydrates, you're in a very well-fed state, your muscles will actually retain more fluid. So it's gonna come up as you have more muscle volume and potentially more muscle mass, but it's not actually measuring the number of muscle fibers that you have within you. So you could have actually maintained all of your muscle, but at the end of prep, because you're consuming less calories, you have a lower carbohydrate intake, you're going pee 20 times a day, so you're not as hydrated as previously, it might come back that you are, you're retaining less fluid and that's gonna come up on the Dexter scan that you potentially have less muscle mass. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular content on our Instagram and YouTube channel. You can find those platforms by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. Yeah, that's why I decided to not take a second DEXA scan at the end of my last prep because I knew if I started off at 10% body fat, then I wouldn't be surprised if I was still 10% at the end, despite losing like 18 kilos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I actually quoted those numbers because that's similar to what came up on my DEXER scan, is mm. that I lost around 11 to 12 kilograms total, and it said that I'd lost five kilograms worth of lean tissue, and I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> mm. Yes, and 
it'll probably be even more skewed for tests like in-body scans or BIA, like those ele- those scales that measure your body fat, which, I mean, we can eyeball better than those scales probably. Mm-hmm. And even things like skin folds, because the, the body fat formula used in skin folds isn't particularly accurate and i think it was based off a population size of four Mm -hmm. so which isn't very specific and it wasn't even athletic population either and what skin folds are good for though is just measuring your skin fold thickness throughout the prep Mm -hmm. like it's not really that accurate for measuring muscle loss or or too much about uh, muscularity changes Mm -hmm. yeah and the funny thing about skin folds is that every time i've ever taken someone's skin folds they usually always ask the question, so what's my body fat percentage? Mm. And one, I don't actually calculate their body fat percentage based on the skin folds. I'm like, well, that's not really what matters here. What actually matters is how are your skin folds changing over time in correlation with your body weight and your progress photos. So that's always something funny that I've always got to Mm. explain. (laughs) Yeah, we could chuck it in the little formula, but it just wouldn't really mean anything. Yeah. Yeah. I guess going back to what you were saying, it's a lot more likely that you're going to lose a little bit of muscle mass compared to maintaining or building muscle mass when you go through a six-month chronic dieting phase to get on a bodybuilding stage. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And I, I certainly wouldn't go into a prep with just being daunted by the fact that, oh God, I've worked so hard to build all this tissue and now I'm just going to diet it away. Like by no means does that need to be the case. So it really just does go back to having a good starting point, knowing how far you starting above your stage weight. Let's say you're starting your prep 10 kilograms above your stage weight. You need to work backwards and say, okay, what is my expected rate of loss per week? I wanna be aiming to lose between that 0.5 to 1% of my body weight per week. And these are the specific weeks that I'm going to be aiming for that rate of loss. You do the math, you figure out how long that's going to take you for a comp prep timeline. And then obviously put in probably a few more weeks in there just to account for hopefully you can be ready a little bit early. Maybe you wanna give yourself a diet break. Maybe you wanna practice a peak week. Maybe you just hit a plateau and you need to account that those normal things happen too. So just making sure you have a good starting point and a good position and you aren't in a position where you have to cut it short. You have to try to get the same amount of weight off in half the amount of time, slash your calories to be super aggressive because that's when you're doing super aggressive protocols, consuming very few calories. You don't have much energy. That's when it's really freaking tough to train hard and maintain your numbers in the gym. And that's usually compounds to then losing a little bit of tissue. Mm. Yeah, hundred percent. I think most people lose muscle due to suboptimal protocols because I think we're still in the bodybuilding scene where not everyone either has the coach or has the resources to have a gold standard prep. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's all about being strategic with who mm. you pick as your comp prep coach. But also bear in mind that like how you look in your improvement season and the amount of muscle mass that you think you have can be a little bit deceiving. Mm. (laughs) I think that a lot of people think they have more muscle than they actually have. And it can actually be quite eye-opening when you hear a coach tell you what your actual predicted stage weight is going to be. Like if you're brand new to the sport and someone actually does a physique assessment with you and they're honestly tell you like, yeah, you've probably got 12 to 15 kilograms to lose to actually be in condition to be on that stage and be competitive. Like hearing those numbers can actually be quite confronting for some people. It really can. And 
I think for people who have never competed before, often we attract people who have never competed. And in our initial consultations, we often suggest uh, taking an extended pre-prep phase with us prior to even undertaking their prep. Mm -hmm. Like for first time competitors, like I'll say it because like I'm very confident in our coaching methods, but more often than not, we don't jump into a a prep straight away Mm -hmm. when someone inquires it is much more common for us to say, hey, this is where you're at. Uh, this is your approximated stage weight. We don't have the luxury of losing 20 to 25 kilos in a prep. It's going to be much more beneficial to do a dieting phase now, then a building phase, and then get into prep or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why I just think it's so important to actually go to a show and actually meet competitors in the flesh if this is truly a sport that you want to get involved in because again, it's a sport of illusions. And if you just see pictures on Instagram where someone's just standing there by themselves doing a most muscular or a double buy or whatever pose, you look at this person shredded to the bone and you're like, this person is enormous. They've got so much muscle mass on them. But then you hear a coach like you or I tell them, yeah, you know, he's a bodybuilding pro, but he weighs 75 kilograms sort of thing. And you're speaking to someone and they're 70 kilograms yeah. <laughs> you know, and they've probably got 12 kilograms to go to actually get themselves in condition mm-hmm. so it's it's really important to understand it is a sport of illusion so don't let social media trick you into thinking that these people are just ginormic i would recommend maybe getting yourself a backstage pass and seeing them when they're backstage chilling out eating rice cakes without a pump you know getting some tan slapped on them they look- that would be weird. <laughs> I wouldn't buy, buy a backstage pass just to see that. Why not? Maybe just go to the show. Get involved. Spectate from the seats, but also go backstage and see what things are like. Because mm, Bring about popcorn, maybe. I'm just saying, we look so different when we are not pumped up and we're just chilling compared to when we're up on stage, like really flexing our stuff. It's night and day. I'm saying, I'm saying it for you. You like, you look very different. I look very different. Everyone looks very different. So it's, it's good to actually know what's, what's the truth behind this. Mm. Yeah, it is. It's sometimes very confronting for people to hear how much they need to lose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, Jack, this next question is more of a nutrition related question. It says, what's the best advice for including more fiber in your diet? I struggle to hit my fiber targets. Yeah, this is a very common question that I get from clients as well. And I'm sure that you get it asked very often. And for those that don't know, uh, fiber is basically a type of carbohydrate that is only partially digested or it's in some cases it's you cannot digest it and it gets uh, fermented in the large intestine and it produces lots of byproducts like short chain fatty acids, which is really beneficial for us. So the other term for fiber is often prebiotics, not to be confused with probiotics, which are the kind of live organisms that people uh, supplement with, which has mixed efficacy. Or you can get it in your dairy products and your Mm. sauerkraut and your pickles. Yes. But uh, topic of fiber. So what is high in fiber? Lots of different things are high in fiber, but essentially it's going to be your plant products. So anything that is plant-based, that is uh, usually... Foods that are less refined are going to be higher in dietary fiber, like your whole grains, your fruits and vegetables, your nuts and your seeds, Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Pulses, beans, legumes, the whole, the Mm. whole shebang, lots of fiber in those things. 
Yeah, so the dietary fiber targets per day is 25 grams for females and 30 grams a day for males. And usually if someone doesn't hit their dietary fiber targets, it's uh, it's usually an indication that they just don't eat enough plant-based foods. Mm-hmm. Like if someone has 10 grams of dietary fiber per day, then I can guarantee you that they're not hitting their fruit and vegetable mm-hmm. recommendations, which is for, for males and females, it's around four to 450 grams of veg a day and 300 grams of fruit a day Mm -hmm. and like even if you're hitting that alone you're getting very very close to your dietary fiber without even factoring in whole grains or carbohydrates and other sources of carbohydrates Mm -hmm. and if you don't want to just go off those blanket recommendations of 25 grams for females and 30 grams for males you can take a more individual approach and actually take into account your specific energy intake and they say around 14 grams per 1000 calories consumed hey guys just a reminder that we don't just coach physique athletes but we do coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal therefore if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com or alternatively Click the link in the show notes below. And dietary fiber is also another good reason why greens powders aren't a substitute because I could be wrong because I honestly don't look at greens powders too much, but I'm quite sure that they don't contain much dietary fiber or any dietary fiber. It's like a few grams, Mm. but you would have to consume grams upon (laughs) grams of super greens to actually hit close to your dietary fiber intake. Mm. But 25 grams, 30 grams are... 14 grams per thousand calories, whatever it may be, as long as you're strategic with your food choices, it's actually not that difficult to hit your dietary Mm. fiber intake. You just do have to ensure that you are consuming your fruit and your veg. The majority of your carbohydrates are coming from whole grain sources as well. Yeah, it's it's really not that difficult. And uh, often I think people underestimate potentially how much Actually, maybe that's kind of looking at it through rose-tinted glasses. But I think some people do look on their MyFitnessPal and they're like, oh, it only says 10 grams of fiber. But that's mainly because you shouldn't use MyFitnessPal as an accurate representation of your fiber intake Mm. unless you actually go through each source on MyFitnessPal and look, okay, does it list the fiber? Does it list the fiber? Because if you're eating like 100 grams of carrot and it lists your fiber as zero, then that's wrong. You need to make sure that it's listed correctly. Yeah, like whenever I see my clients and they list their macros and their fiber intake and like, you know, it's those initial weeks of starting coaching. I'm like, man, your fiber is like 13 grams a day, but you haven't mentioned that you're experiencing any gastrointestinal discomfort because lo and behold, usually when you don't consume enough fiber, you get pretty backed up, you feel pretty constipated. But if someone hasn't mentioned that they're experiencing any GIT issues, they're not experiencing any issues with digestion and they just can't stop talking about how great they feel it usually is a case of my fitness pal isn't accounting for that and i personally think one of the gold standard ways to know whether or not you're consuming enough dietary fiber for you whether you're tracking or not is whether or not you have regular comfortable digestion Mm -hmm. yeah it certainly is one of the the main indicators of sufficient dietary fiber Mm. Because I guess we can think of, uh, there's two main types, like soluble and insoluble. Soluble helps draw in water, and that's what helps like soften your stool and makes it quite easy to pass. And then insoluble fiber, 
uh, like I'm sure you guys know what insoluble means. It means it can't really absorb water. It's mm-hmm. not soluble. It adds the bulk. It adds the bulk to the stool. So that's why, yeah, I won't get into too much detail other than that, but you can <laughs> understand if just look up the Bristol stool chart if you want some more information. <laughs> but either way, I wouldn't, I would personally just focus on the fundamentals and focus on having a variety within your diet that's filled with plenty of different types of fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, your whole grains, all of that. And then that way you don't actually have to worry about, all right, what's the percentage of my soluble to insoluble fiber? Because I personally think it's probably just going to figure itself out. Yeah, it doesn't because, matter too much. Yeah, because... Unless you're like... Some people supplement with like 50 grams of psyllium husk a day, which is like insoluble (laughs) and that's going to cause some issues if you don't have any other types of fiber. Yeah. But even then, like usually our plant sources, they, they themselves will have a combination of soluble and, and insoluble fiber. One might dominate, but it's never just going to be just one or the other, but you can usually tell, like, for example, your grains, they usually have soluble fiber in them. Because when you think about when you cook up grains, like oats they absorb a lot of water and they get really thick right so they do have a lot of soluble fiber in them one of those main fibers is actually called beta glucan but then if you think of another food that's high in fiber for example let's say corn corn yeah or or carrot right like those things they don't absorb much water and they just add the bulk Mm. yes But I think another thing too is to not just be strategic with your carb sources, but be strategic with your fat sources too. So if you find that within your diet, you're predominantly getting a lot of your fats from, let's say, mayonnaise and oils and butters. If or you meat. Or meat. You could always swap those things out for a fat source. Or that probably you should swap them out. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you can always swap those things out for a fat source that has arguably a more nutritious fatty acid profile it's more mono and polyunsaturated compared to a saturated fat but also it has fiber bound to it too so rather than butter using something like avocado and you know incorporating more nuts and seeds into your cooking rather than a lot of oils and just the so forth Mm. yeah definitely i one thing that i often pick up as well when clients ask me for nutrition feedback is just their diversity in fat sources. It's something that's quite easily overlooked because fat gets that kind of connotation of not being particularly healthy. So they, like often people get a lot of their dietary fat through meat Mm. and then they might have some peanut butter and then call it a day. But there are plenty of other fat sources to include Mm -hmm. like nuts and seeds and avocado and extra virgin olive oil all that kind of stuff. Yeah, even with extra virgin olive oil, you can mix it up and actually use whole olives. Sometimes people forget about that. You know, like mm. if you're making a stir fry, you could always put like some actual olives in there. Or if you're making a, a pasta. stir fry with olives in it? Yeah. I haven't heard of that. Oh, well, it's delicious. You put hummus in your stir fries. I know you like well, to jazz I, when them When I think up. of a traditional stir fry, like I don't really see olives mm. in there. Yeah, well, I'm just saying, like, you can mix things up. Or, mm. for example, rather than Wouldn't, cooking a stir-fry... I think a, a bolognese fry, or a pizza would be a better recommendation. That would be good. But, yeah, if you were, let's making a bolognese, rather than cooking up your beef mince, which already has some fat in it, in some extra oil, you could throw some olives in there. Or if you're making up a stir-fry, throw in, like, some cashew nuts or something like that. Mm. be good. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so little things add up to uh, to make your dietary fiber intake. But if you want to be tracking it accurately on MyFitnessPal, 
obviously just using verified entries that are much more likely to account for dietary fiber. So like your nut tab entries and your USD entries rather than just random entries on there, like carrots. Just carrots, yeah. <laughs> on that note, Jack and I actually did do a pretty good post this past week on our TBD Instagram page talking about the difference when you track with a high level of accuracy on MyFitnessPal compared to a low level of accuracy and how, you know, tracking in general is still going to give you a ballpark range for what you're consuming, but just little changes in how you actually track things in terms of which cuts of meat you choose and whether things are raw or cooked, actually weighing things in grams rather than putting things in cups or using tablespoons, it can actually be quite a difference of a few hundred calories. And uh, a lot of calories and a lot of macros can actually go unaccounted for when you are using just random entries rather than verified entries like USDA or nut tab. So yeah, go check out the TBD Instagram page for that uh, little post on how we suggest using MyFitnessPal. Yeah, it was a great post and very insightful, I think, for those of you who still aren't very proficient at tracking in MyFitnessPal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it comes back to if you're going to do something, try your best to do it right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> great. Well, it's a pretty good place to wrap up for this podcast. But Jack, I want to know, what did you learn this week? So I learned a new term, actually. I have a client in South Africa who needs to see a professional for some rehabilitation advice, which is outside of our scope of practice. And he used the term biokinetics. And I'd never heard of that term before. And apparently it's, they have physiotherapists over there. I could be getting all of this wrong, but my interpretation of it was that someone who has a profession in biokinetics they give the exercises necessary for rehabilitation, I guess kind of like a exercise physiologist here combined with a physio maybe. So like he saw a physio, but the physio for some reason didn't give him rehabilitation exercises. He just diagnosed it and now he has to see a, someone in biokinetics to actually know what stuff to do to fix it. Man, that's really interesting. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that would make things difficult though, obviously, when you obtain like a university level degree in another country and then mm. you move over to another country. I've had many conversations with people who like, it's just very frustrating when sometimes the qualifications, like they aren't recognized depending on which country you go to. And you're like, yeah. I went to uni for four years. I've studied my physiology and anatomy. Like, what are you telling me that my degree and my credentials aren't legit here? Mm. Well, it makes sense. Everyone has different pathways required for accreditation mm -hmm. absolutely yeah mm -hmm. but it would just be difficult obviously like for example if, if you had a law degree and then you were moving countries because the law is very different everywhere that you go mm, that would be tough <laughs> but what did you learn okay jack so i learned this past week that clearly who we are and what we do and the business name that we chose is not clear enough <laughs> because <laughs> i got a phone call from someone from an insurance company and picked up the phone, very nice lady, and she was asking me whether or not I owned any vehicles. And I said, oh yes, you know, I just bought a car last year. And she's like, oh, so you don't own any trucks or tractors or buses? And I'm like, no. And she's like, but your business name? And I was like, yes. And she's like, your business name is called TBD Coaching. <laughs> so you don't own any buses. <laughs> 
And I just absolutely lost it because <laughs> TBD coaching, the TBD bus line. If all else fails, Jack, you know, and this whole dietitian and bodybuilding thing doesn't work out, mm-hmm. at least we know that we could go down the route of using our business name as TBD coaching for a bus line service. <laughs> I'm wondering how they even got your number because it's on Google, it's listed as the bodybuilding dietitians, not TBD coaching. I think they looked up like our ABN. Mm. So they were obviously looking up Australian. ACN, I think. ACN, well, like our company name and our business name. And they were looking that up online and they were trying to contact companies and businesses to mm. obviously insure buses. But uh, I just thought that was so hilarious because that never crossed my mind when I thought that we'd call it TBD coaching as it would be uh, confused for buses. <laughs> but if, hey, if anyone, uh, if anyone wants to hop aboard the TBD bus. <laughs> I just won't be driving and neither will you. <laughs> what, Boston's going to be driving? Well, I don't trust anyone in this household to drive. What we need is a TBD Tesla bus. You know, it can drive itself. Yes. Yes. So we can be in the back lifting weights. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we'll catch you next week.